40. As I said earlier, we come to our second to last study of this wonderful book, and tonight we want to look at chapter 40, verse 6, through chapter 42, verse 6, which in every way is part two of God in the whirlwind. To get us started, however, I just want to read verse 6 through 14 of chapter 40, before God turns Job's attention to these magnificent, if mysterious, creatures in the rest of the text. So let me just read verse 6 through 14. Pray and then we'll begin. So listen now as God does speak to you from his perfect word. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice? Like his, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity, close yourself with glory and splendor, pour out the overflowings of your anger and look upon everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together, bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. And thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray again. Oh, Father, we continue to thank you for the way in which you speak to us and the way in which you have spoken to us in recent weeks through this wonderful book and pray that again as we come to hear your truth declared to Job, that we would have a heart of humility, we would have a heart of submission before you, in the midst of our suffering, we would know the comfort, the sweetness that belongs to trusting in your sovereign grace in our life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. As many of you know, we have five boys at home in the Stone household. Uh, therefore, no small number of times has passed in the family room when there was something of a Stone family wrestling match take place. And no doubt some of you parents can even think about times, perhaps this week, when such a wrestling match took place. Maybe you grandfathers can think of such a time recently or recall times that have been many years in the past when there was wrestling that happened with the children. And as those of you adults understand, is, is when you're, you're wrestling with the child, there is this res reservation of strength and, and energy and, and force that you apply to the situation. Oftentimes, it's applied in such a way that uh, the child begins to get prideful and think that they are actually making headway in the wrestling match. And you begin to exert a little bit more force. And if you were anything like me in such a circumstance, you continue to exert the force until they realize that they're not going to win the match. And you might have a child or a grandchild like we have had in the Stone household before that quite quickly wants to tap out as soon as things get going hard. And if you're like anything, if you're anything like me, you look down at the child and say, well, you wanted this match, so it's time to buck up and get back in the fight. Now, I tell you that, because we're in the midst of a wrestling match that Yahweh has with Job. It's famously understood, understandably, as God in a whirlwind. But we noticed last week, if you were with us, that really the whirlwind is God summoning Job to a wrestling match. 
And the reason we know that's true is because of uh, the language that's used in chapter 38, repeated also in our text tonight, glance down again to verse 7 of chapter 40, where Yahweh comes and says, commanding Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Language of dress for action, the language of, of gird up your loins is a language of a, of a wrestling match in that ancient Near Eastern context. And we talked about that last week as Yahweh came along the way. And he, he told Job, it's time to gird up your loins and get ready. You have wanted to have an audience with me. And Job, you now have your audience with me. But first, answer me a few questions, Job. And if you remember from chapter 38 and 39, it was as though God took Job by the hand and walked him through this divine planetarium. I walked him through God's zoo. He took him through the natural world. Where were you when I created this? Are you able with your own voice to uphold this? Do you have strength and wisdom to sustain this? Tell me, Job. And so he says, you'll notice where we really left off last week, verse 2 of chapter 40, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty, he who argues with God, let him answer it. Job then says, well, let me put my hand over my mouth, uh, for I have, have nothing to say. It's as though in the wrestling match, he's tapped out. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern world, when it came to wrestling, the, the usual way of winning the wrestling match was that these two men, think of it students, grappling together. Uh, they're instructed to hitch up uh, their loins, as it were, which is normally being their tunic or their robe that would kind of get tucked underneath their belt in the way in which you won the wrestling match is you would take the belt of your opponent. And if you got the belt, then you won the match. But if you were strong enough, you'd take the belt and you'd throw it right back at him and say, how about we go again? And that's what God is doing here with Job tonight. He's taking the belt, as it were, and he's throwing it back to Job. He says, how about you do it again? Address for action like a man and I'm going to come to you. But in a way that's different from the first part of God's whirlwind account is that that first part dealt with the natural order. Uh, God is now dealing with the moral order in this second part. And it's almost as though when we get to verse 15 of chapter 40, it's as though Yahweh is saying, Job, you, you can't wrestle with me. So how about you wrestle with these two creatures, these mysterious, these magnificent, these altogether mighty creatures, behemoth and leviathan. And tell me how that goes, Job. And so what we want to see tonight is what God is basically addressing here at the end of this wonderful story is that which was at the very heart of Job's words that filled so much of the previous story. Job, do you really think you have the wisdom and the strength to execute justice in the world. Because if you have had eyes to see, by this point in the story, Job has made no small number of not-so-subtle hints, I know better. I can account for this better. And Yahweh is essentially saying, are you so sure that's true? So I want to look at our text tonight in three simple parts that I'll just mark off with these words, authority, victory, and humility. But we'll turn each of them into a question. 
Because we want to see, first of all, in verse 6 through 14 of chapter 40, God is essentially asking Job the question, can you reign with sovereign authority? Can you reign, Job, with sovereign authority? Notice what he asks of Job again in verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? God's using language that's taken, isn't it, from this courtroom. He's saying, Job, are you going to lock me in the witness box and put me on trial for how I've ruled over your life? Do you really have that ultimate authority? Do you really have that ultimate wisdom? And you see, he even says in verse 9, do you have the ultimate strength to go about overseeing all of this moral order? So he teases out this hypothetical situation in verse 10 through 14. He says, okay, Job, why don't you adorn yourself with majesty and dignity? Close yourself with glory and strength. Pour out your overflowing anger upon those that need justice meted out upon them. Cast down the pride even to death and destruction and to judgment. And when you do that, well then I will, you'll notice, verse 14, acknowledge that you and your own right hand can save you. He's trying to show Job, isn't he? Clearly, you do not have the authority over this situation in your life. What can you rule over in this cosmic moral order with that degree of sovereign authority? And yet Job, he wanted it, didn't he? You know, kids, there are times, I suppose, in your own life where you might think, maybe you thought about it this week, if mom and dad would just leave me in charge, it would be so much better. And some of you parents just chuckle, knowing what would happen if the child was left in charge. That's what God's doing here with Job. Do you really think if I left you in charge, everything would be okay? I suppose it might be like my fifth child, Sarah, who loves to boss the sixth child around, Boston. And we would leave for vacation for a month-long time and say, Sarah, why don't you just take care of Boston? Let's see how that goes. The five-year-old taking care of the four-year-old. The six-year-old taking care of the three-year-old. Whatever your situation might be. The point is, it's utterly ludicrous, isn't it? Job, you do not have the authority to rule over this situation. You need only acknowledge that I do. And then as we turn our attention to verse 15, really through the end of chapter 41, uh, the next question God is essentially asking Job is, can you rule with sovereign victory? So Job, you don't have the wisdom to execute justice. And now he's saying, all right, here's the belt. Let's see what you do with behemoth and Leviathan. Do you have the strength to execute justice in the world? So what do we know about behemoth? You'll notice verse 15. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Uh, You need to know about that word there, behemoth, that title, that name in verse 15. It just means chief of beasts, which is understandable then why throughout the centuries since this book was written, Christians and believers have always tried to wonder who exactly is behemoth. But let me read through some of the description and see what you might come up with as behemoth's identity. Behold, his strength is in his loins, verse 16, and his power is in the muscle 
of his bellies. Verse 18, his bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. Verse 20, for the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies, and in the shelter of the reeds in the marsh. Skip down to verse 23. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against him. Can anyone take him by his eyes and pierce his nose with a snare? I came home a few weeks ago and found that the children were eagerly playing on the floor with this, this new game that evidently Emily had Emily had stashed away the, these games in a cabinet and was only pulling one down every so many weeks to kind of get them excited about these board games. And as I walked in, you heard all this clicking and clacking going about, and you noticed that hands were feverishly slamming down on something on the floor, and it's because they were playing that game that you might remember called Hungry Hippo. And if you remember Hungry Hippo, some of the hippos have rather docile names, like like bottomless potamus and sweetie potamus and veggie potamus. And the reason I tell you that is because most people, if you take the naturalistic interpretation of chapter 40, think the behemoth is a hippopotamus. It certainly is a terrifying creature, but I'll tip my hand to tell you I don't think it is a hippopotamus. I don't think the way in which God is confronting Job out of this whirlwind and calling him to a wrestling match is with any natural being. But we'll come back to that in a moment. Simply told here in verse 15 through the end of chapter 40, his, his question to Job is simple, isn't it, students? Can you just reel behemoth in with your own strength? This figure that rules seemingly over the land. Well, in chapter 41, much more descriptive language gets used of this second creature. You see, verse 41 names him. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook? Or press down his tongue with a cord. Now, children, let me, let me read a few more descriptions related to Leviathan. And I want you to think in your own mind. What does that sound like? And we'll see what perhaps you might come up with. Verse 5, showing how dangerous he is. Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your Girls, verse 12, I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame who can strip off his outer garment, verse 14, who can open the doors of his faith around his teeth, his terror, his back is made up of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal, verse 18, his sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn, so on and so forth. Verse 20, out of his nostrils come forth smoke, and as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. Verse 28, the arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble, and he laughs at the rattle of the javelins. You'll see how it ends in verse 33 and 34. On earth, there is not his like a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high, and he is king over all the sons of pride. And it's in that last phrase of chapter 41 that I think signals the identity of Leviathan. Because if you just go back later tonight to your own house and, and read through this long description of Leviathan, 
uh, you surely would come, my trust, to the conclusion that there's no animal in God's created order that accurately fits this description. And if you, if you read it rightly, you say it starts to sound a whole lot, doesn't it? A whole lot like a dragon. And who is said to be king over all the sons of pride, but Satan himself. I would submit to you that what we find in Leviathan is none other than a poetic illustration of Satan, whom Revelation calls the great dragon that opposes God's people. And it wouldn't make the most sense in a book that began in the heavenly council with who appearing before God? Satan. At God's final word to him in the whirlwind is Job. Consider in this ancient Near Eastern symbolism, this mythical way, consider Satan. And do you think you have control over him? And the point is, of course, God says, I do. Psalm chapter 104, verse 25 and 26, it refers to Leviathan. And God's sovereign power is such that he creates Leviathan. He treats Leviathan like a pet playing in the sea. Such is God's strength over even the king of the sons of pride. I'm increasingly thinking that actually Behemoth belongs to Satan as well, but uh, there is much thought, I think, worth our attention that Behemoth might refer to death as it's picturing this great power that seems to consume everything that it comes across. And no doubt, I trust it makes sense to you that in a book that is so full of the suffering of death at the hands of Satan, that here in the whirlwind, in a poetic, illustrative way, God is saying to Job, that which I have allowed to come against you, can you do anything to stop it? Can you do anything to control it? Can you do anything to reign over it in victory? Job, you can't. But I can. And I do. Which leads to God's response. Notice verse 2 of chapter 42. I'm sorry, Job's response. He answers the Lord. He says, I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now Job's final words in this book lead us to ask our third and final question. Will you respond with simple humility? He alone has the sovereign authority. He alone has the sovereign victory. Will you respond in the midst of your situation, perhaps even your suffering, with simple humility? On the way to our house through certain parts of the year, you might pass by wheat fields. And if you've ever passed by a wheat field before at harvest time, uh, you might know that certain stalks hang higher than others. And you might also know, if you're agrarian enough, that it's uh, those stalks that are full of wheat that tend to bend low because of the weight. It's those that are empty that hold up high. Now, what's Job doing here? But now as his mind is filled with the revelation of who God is, but in humility begins to bend low, as he must and as we should. You see verse 3 through verse 6, as he's now quoting back God's words to him and responding appropriately. Who is this, God had said, that hides counsel without knowledge? Job responds, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. God also said, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. Job says, verse 5 and 6, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust 
and ashes. I wanted an audience with you, God, and you've given it to me. And now I'm just quiet, laid low before your sovereign majesty. There was a coach I had one season of my soccer life that tended to end most training sessions with calling the team together and more or less just kind of walking through what we just did. And it very much had this tone of, well, what did we learn today? And you get here to the end of Job and God in the whirlwind and you want to say, well, what did we learn after God's voice to Job in the whirlwind? And I would submit to you one simple and profound and life-altering truth if you would understand it simply. What did Job get? He wanted explanation. He got revelation. He wanted vindication. He got interrogation. He wanted the answer to why. He got the God who is. And so often in our own life, isn't it true that when seasons of suffering come and bitter providences arrive along the way, we're so desperate. Why, Lord? Why now? Why him? Why her? Why this? Why that? And that can be an okay question to ask. But when it veers into complaint like it did with Job, it's us saying little more than we know better. It shouldn't be him. It shouldn't be her. It shouldn't be this. It shouldn't be that. When what God has given to his people is the comfort, not of why this or that happens, but the genuine comfort that this is who I am toward you in your suffering. For who is it that proves over his own life and ministry that death has lost all of its sting? That everything that Satan means for evil, God will use for good. That Satan himself is a vanquished foe, that enemy of God's people, but Jesus Christ, the innocent sufferer, who himself in his very death, burial and resurrection, put death to death, put Satan to shame, triumphed over him. So therefore, he is with you in the midst of your suffering. You know, he is sovereign towards you, so you might not get the answer of why. But the great truth of Job is, the Lord says you don't need it. All you need to know is who he is towards you and his son, Jesus Christ. And that will sustain you in steadfastness for whatever the Lord brings to your life. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would make us joyful in the midst of affliction, that you would prepare us even now for future suffering, that we would honor you, that complaint would not always fill our mouth, but gratitude and thanksgiving would abound from our hearts, knowing that it's through the sandpaper-like qualities of suffering that you are always making us shine evermore in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's his name we pray these things. Amen.